0: this is the sales gravy podcast i'm jeb blunt best-selling author of fanatical prospecting sales eq objections and ink and i'm here to help you open more doors close bigger deals and rock your commission check welcome back to sales gravy on this episode we're talking with wanda wallace about why leaders today don't need to know everything and if you lead people you know how it feels when you think you need to have the answers to all the questions that come at you this episode is perfect for leaders aspiring leaders and anyone who works for a leader because trust me everyone can get something out of this amazing value-packed conversation but first a couple of episodes ago i introduced you to a company called blueboard Blueboard is the world's leading incentives platform that helps companies make President's Club meaningful again. You see, with Blueboard, your top reps get to choose the President's Club experience that's most exciting to them. From chasing the Northern Lights, to yoga retreats in Mexico, to taking the family to surf camp in San Diego there's an awesome adventure awaiting every single rep. So if you're looking for a way to reward your top producers and retain your top producers with Blueboard, you can let them choose the trip or experience that is personal and meaningful to them. To learn more about Blueboard, go to podcast.blueboard.com. That's podcast.blueboard.com and find out how you can reward your top performers with a bucket list experience of their dreams. That's podcast.blueboard.com. Now here's my conversation with Wanda Wallace about why you don't need to know everything. Hi, I'm Jeb Blunt. I'm the CEO of Sales Gravy and the author of People Follow You. And with me is Wanda Wallace, one of my very good friends. And she is the author of an incredible new book. It's a wonderful book called You Can't Know It All, Leading in the Age of Deep Expertise. And I thought we'd just jump right in, Wanda, and start with, what do you mean by leading in the age of deep expertise? What does this mean?
1: We have gotten so in love with content that... So if you think about it, when we go to hire somebody in a position, we don't go hire the best leader. We go hire somebody who knows the industry, who knows our customers, who knows our technology, who knows our products. We hire expertise. That's what we're looking for. And we're in a knowledge economy. Everything is driven by how much you know. How much value I am to the company is about how much I know. How well I'm leading is about how much I know and I can teach my team. It's everywhere baked into our psyche and we don't even stop to think about how powerful it is.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that I think you probably have two schools of thought, because this comes up all the time with questions that leaders ask me. And in, a, and in a lot of cases, it comes from salespeople who are asking me, how do I go get a job in another industry? Mm-hmm. S- specifically what you said. They, they say, well, the, 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 the person I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing with says I don't have enough, you know, enough expertise or enough experience in a particular industry. And that's one school of thought. My, my admonition to leaders that are in that space is always focus on talent first, and then worry about expertise, because in in many cases, a person who has deep talent and they're really smart and they're good at doing things, they're able to take on issues that are, are in, in, in areas that you can teach them the things that they know from an expertise standpoint. But what you can teach is the talent, the ability to connect with other people, empathy, emotional intelligence, those types of things. So, I think there are two schools of thoughts there. Uh, Although you're right, I think the pendulum is swung toward we're going to hire people who have deep expertise. And it's funny because I wrote about this in 2010 when I wrote my book, People Follow Are People Buy You. Uh, I wrote about how the world was moving towards specialization and people were going to get stuck in these niches over the, the course of their career.
1: It's true. There's two ways to think about this. Expertise is critical. Like You can't get away from the fact that you got to know stuff. And if I'm not going to be the deep expertise, there's some content I have got to know. I've got to have the basic structures in place, but I don't need 10 years of knowledge to understand, for example, how a nursing staff operates in a hospital and to be able to interface with selling them a product, for example, to take a recent example. So I either, I have to know some things, but I don't have to everything. I have to know who I can tap that knows the content I need to know. And I have to be comfortable with the fact that I might not know. So I can't get my self-esteem, my value wrapped up in the notion that all I'm bringing is my knowledge.
0: Okay, so let's let's just start there because I think this is a really good segue into why leaders don't need to know everything and I'm going to set you up here with uh, an analogy from my world so you know I'm with sales gravy so we spoke focus most of our time on sales professionals and sales leaders and selling organizations. And it's not uncommon in our coaching ultra performance courses that we will have leaders who have never managed salespeople so these are operators who have who are really good at p l really good at process and they've suddenly been been elevated to say a general manager type position where now all of a sudden they've got multiple departments under them and then they have a sales organization and what i always find amusing and maybe this is because i don't have that perspective is that the part of the organization that flamuxes them the most? If I can use that word, is the salespeople? Like they, 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 it feels like they're they're managing aliens. They don't understand this group of people. They understand the people that are in administration. They understand the people that are in finance. They understand all their operators, but the salespeople are a, like a different world to them. And what they what they bemoan, what they talk about, what they worry about is, I've never been in sales. I don't know how to do it. And I think the salespeople, to some extent, get that, they understand that, so they're, they've gotten really good at snowing these managers into believing something that's not true about the things that we're asking them to do. At the same time, most of these leaders don't want to do the things that they're asking their salespeople to do. They don't want to make cold calls, they don't want to go out and interrupt strangers, they don't want to face a rejection every single day. And my message to them, is, as 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 you wrote in your book, is like you don't need to know everything. You don't need you don't need to have been a salesperson to be able to manage salespeople. You just need to know the process of managing salespeople, uh, and to some extent, and we'll get into this in just a moment. You just need to know the right questions to ask, not necessarily have the expertise in that. So I'm going to set you up right there. You're a business owner. You are, you've been promoted into a, a role where you've never managed salespeople, our world. Why, why in, in your opinion and, and in your writing, do you say that leaders really don't need to know everything?
1: As a leader, I think your job is to enable people to get stuff done. And if you change it from my job is to do it, like my job is to know how to be a salesperson, to make the sales calls, and therefore know how to pull the levers to make my salespeople do exactly what I want them to do, that's underpinning what's really going on in somebody's head. And you say, no, my job is to enable it. Well, then I need, I have a completely different set of knowledge I need. I need to understand what motivates that salespeople. I need to understand what obstacles they have in place. I need to understand what kind of environment is going to make them successful. I need to understand how do I interface them with the rest of the organization. So we're running smoothly. It's to enable not to do. And that shift is the essence of the shift between being an expert leader who tries to know it all and being what I call a spanning leader who's getting the best capability out of everybody. But can I give you an example, Deb? Yes. Because most people get this when it comes to who they want to be managed by, but they don't get it in terms of how they manage. So here's an exercise for people. One, first thing, write down on a piece of paper or on anywhere you like, electronic or otherwise, why you think your company keeps you employed. What's your value add to that company? Just give it to me. We're not gonna grade it, just put it down. I will bet you, for most people, 90% of the words on that page have to do with your content, your expertise, your ability to execute, make it happen. Okay, now, in contrast, list your favorite leader, all time that you've worked with and list for me what you valued about that leader. Just put the qualities down. I guarantee you they all have to do with enabling. Coaching, listening, motivating, inspiring, caring about me, giving me feedback, all that human interaction stuff is what people really want out of their leaders. And that's what we need our leaders to be doing. Enable, not doing.
0: And I think that's a great segue into something that I think is missed by a lot of leaders. So one of the exercises I ask leaders to do is I want you to go back and think about one of the best leaders you ever had. And like really think about this person. And it doesn't have to be someone you work for now. It could be a coach in high school. It could be a college professor. It could be a parent. It could be a mentor. It could be somebody. And think about that person. and And what i when I get them thinking about it, my challenge to them is think about how they communicated with you. Because if you really think about it, they frustrated you because when you went to them to get answers, they didn't give you answers. They gave you questions, questions that provoked awareness of your need to change or that there were possibilities that you weren't exploring when you were faced with a a problem. And that's, that's why when I'm working with leaders, especially leaders who say, well, I don't know how to do this job. What I say to them is, look, it's not about what you say. It's not about what you know. It's about what you ask. Is the question that you ask of, of a person is more important than anything that you'll ever say. Essentially, what I say is leadership is a language of questions. So, so my question to you is, do you buy this? And if you do, how do leaders learn the right questions to ask or do they already know the right questions to ask, they're just getting in their own way because they're so focused on having a specialization in an area versus thinking more broadly about how do you actually coach people and enable people?
1: I totally agree with you. And let me put it in my language just to contrast, and then I'll come to answer your question about how do you learn the questions. So, the first thing as a leader, I want you, let's say you're working for me, Jeb, to be excited, motivated, engaged, inspired, on fire, pick whatever words. I want that out of you because I know that's where I'm going to get my best performance out of you and where you're going to have the most fun at the end of the day. Okay, so now I have two ways of getting you to do something or to see things differently. I can say, Jeb, you've missed this. Let me tell you how it is and what I know, and therefore, in effect, what it is you need to do, and I will bet a lot of money that that does not leave you fired up at the end of the day. You feel kind of talked down to, stupid, you know, then you have to learn to come back and ask me every time, well, Wanda, what do you think I should do in this occasion? That's not very good. If instead, I can get you to think for yourself, and I ask a question that gets you to reflect and to think about it, That's where I'm going to get you inspired, motivated, and fired up. Now, I'm going to do a weird thing. Can I do this? I want to read a quote. It's um, Paul Extel's book. It's called Compassionate Leadership. I was prepping for my own podcast today, and here's a quote. Describing a leader, his questions were very good, and if you tried to answer them intelligently, you found yourself saying excellent things that you did not know you knew. That's what we want.
0: That's fantastic. What a great quote. That just gave me chills up my spine when you said that, because you're exactly right. That's because I think that's the thing that leaders miss is that people mostly know the answers. They just can't come up with the answers until you ask them the question that allows you allows them to bring that answer to the surface. What a wonderful quote. so
1: well and half the time hold on one more thing half the time the things that they're asking you we don't actually even know the answer to no one knows the answer to it we're making it up as we go so learning those questions getting comfortable with asking questions is powerful okay so now yes your next piece
0: well you just described you just described the entire uh, strategy for my company msu that's what we do uh, as we go right so we just make stuff up as we go along yeah I think that I think that that's a great quote but I think that this is I think it's so powerful I want to just dwell on this for a moment. Your job as a leader is not to know it. Your job is to pull the things out of other people that they know. That that is in somewhat common sense. And by the way, even with your experts, people who know more about what they're doing than you do, it's asking them the questions that get them to think about about common sense, about things that make sense and and about process. And that's what I find to be the most important thing. And by the way, just an analogy for this. I, I've Back from my corporate days when I was vice president of sales, I had a bunch of trainers. And I, I would send them out and the trainers would, oh my God, I can't train this, I don't know it. And I'm like, you don't have to know it. You have to know the questions to ask to get them to tell you the things that they already know that's what we're teaching we're not we're not providing people because we're in the people business we're teaching people empathy and connecting and asking questions and and getting past emotional problems and building emotional discipline we're not teaching people how to run a computer program and clearly if you're teaching someone how to code you probably need to know how to code but when it comes to soft skills what you need to know is how to ask them questions and when we when i would help my 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 sales leaders, or my sales trainers get past that. suddenly they would be, "Oh, well, I can teach this. I can get this down. they They were so fixated on having to be an expert at it that they couldn't get past the fact that their job wasn't to be the expert. Their job was to be the expert at getting people to learn
1: absolutely right. I mean, that is your job as a leader is getting people to think, again, think for themselves to discover them for themselves, and to talk to each other in different ways. Now, you ask though, how do you learn the questions? And I have to give you a story because I think stories are inspiring. One of my all-time favorite CEOs, his name is John. He is not a technical person, does not have an engineering degree, but he's now CEO of a very engineering, intensively engineering-oriented company. He doesn't know the engineering, So he says, I had to ask some questions. And he would say to his team, look, explain this to me. I'm not an engineer. Walk me through how this process happens in a really simple way so I understand. And then John says, I had to ask some dumb questions. He said, but you know, lots of times those dumb questions actually really led to interesting insights. And that's part of the secret. Get over that you're supposed to ask the most intelligent question. Sometimes it's the simple one that causes people to pause and reflect.
0: Yeah, you, know, you know, one of my favorite questions for for as a just walking around leader is how, I'm just curious, how come you're doing it that way? That's I ask that question all the time. When I was a general manager of a, a big plant, and I had a lot of people that were they knew way more about all the stuff that was going on there than I did. And I would just walk around the building and say, How come you do it that way? And they would explain it to me. And sometimes they would say, well, we really probably shouldn't do it it that way, but the machine's broken. So we're doing this. And I'm like, why are we, why didn't we fix the machine? And you go to the person who's supposed to fix the machine and they would go, well, wait, we didn't fix the machine because we didn't have a budget. Why didn't you have a budget? And you go to the controller and the controller, well, I'm trying to save for next month. And I go, but if you think about it, we just spent twice as much money having the person go through this process than just fixing the machine. But it was asking those questions that helped you learn what was going on. So you could actually lead in the moment.
1: So there's a bunch of questions in the book. If you want a better set, I think every leader needs a set of questions that they walk around with. So my starting point is tell me what's on your mind. Um, Just tell me, what are you thinking about? That gets you incredibly far. What's an obstacle that's in your way? What's keeping you from being your best success? What's one thing my group could do differently that would make your group perform better? Those are great questions. And then what do you need from me? How can I help you? Um, Is often, they're just, that's
0: Great starting point for starting to ask questions. Wonderful. Okay, so we've 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 made the case for why you don't need to know everything, and still people are attached to knowing everything. And there's a couple of reasons why. But let's just start with you've got the leader that says, "Okay, Wanda, I get it. I got this. You know, you're right. I don't need to know everything. But um, but how do I let go of that? And how do I let go of that need to be the expert or uh, or that feeling that I've just I've got to I've got to have all the knowledge and it has to be mine. How do you let it go?
1: Yeah, there's a fear I'm going to make a mistake. There's fear somebody's going to catch me out. I'm going to feel like an imposter because I don't know everything. And by the way, I've been rewarded my entire life up to this point for knowing. And so baked into my belief about myself is that i'm effective because i know the details that's where my confidence comes from that's where my network comes from so it's deep in the psyche and the only way to let go of the need to know of everything is to focus on this thing about enabling and to get clear about how you enable what are the tools in your toolkit to help you enable one of those is the questions you ask Another thing is to understand what value your team actually needs from you today, and it's probably not content knowledge, at least about their stuff. and maybe content knowledge about what's happening in another division, but not about their particular stuff. Um, they need a leader that is going to build bridges for them across the organization. They need a leader that's going to talk to them about how to grow and develop. And so you've got those kind of tools, the management tools that let you add value to your team. Let's be clear, if you're not adding value and you don't know much, you're not going to be there very long. So we've got to change what that value is. Best way to let go of it is to focus on your favorite all-time leaders and say, what did they do that added value to me as a team member? And then do that stuff. Your job is to enable not to do. Okay, and then the next thing is we have to deal with this whole thing called imposter syndrome, because that's the piece that everybody gets nervous about right now. The first thing I'm going to say to you is if you're trying, perfect, if you're trying to do something you haven't done before and that you don't know, you're going to have imposter syndrome guaranteed. 80% of the population struggles with this at one point in time. You're in good company. The 20% that don't either never get out of their comfort zone on knowledge and expertise, or they're so arrogant, we don't actually want to interact with them. So (laughs) I'll stay with the 80%. Thank you very much. Now, popular wisdom is you fake it. But I don't believe you can fake it. I believe when you know you don't know, and you're not confident, it comes across in the subtle body language stuff that we can't control. So fake it, just, you know, what a bad way to start a relationship with somebody, I'm going to fake it. And then a year from now, I get to tell you, well, that's not really true. But bad strategy. Now, equally though, I don't want to walk around with a big banner across my chest that says, I don't know anything. And I'm feeling completely like a fake. That's not a good strategy either. It's a balancing act. So the secret to doing this is to be comfortable saying there's stuff. I don't know. There's stuff I do know, but there's stuff I don't know. And that's okay. And then learn to ask those questions. No, I don't know what that process looks like. Explain to me and explain to me why you're doing it that way and explain to me what would help it be more efficient. Tell me. People value being able to explain that way. One of the um, leaders that I write about in the book um, is leading a technology company. He's not a technologist at all. It's a startup, it's a software oriented business. They've been quite successful too, I might add. He knows nothing about IT. So his job is to go down and sit with the programmers. And he says, I'll go spend an afternoon with them and just say, you know, so show me what you do and show me what's easy about your job. Show me what's hard about your job. He's not trying to be the programmer. He's just trying to understand what's working for them. And that kind of interaction actually is what gives him confidence as a leader that he knows what his team needs. And that's where you want to focus.
0: I think you're I think that's a really good analogy and I'll tell you a real a quick story from my own past because I run into this constantly in our coaching classes. It's okay, so we've explained everything. Your job is what do you, you know what do you what do you value as a leader? So I get people to say, like I value developing people, I love the aha's, I love seeing people win. But when I'm dealing with salespeople, I'm a general manager, I'm a business owner, I just feel completely like a fish out of water, and I feel like I'm an imposter, I feel insecure, and I agree with you. I think faking it till you make it is a stupid strategy when it comes to this because it does come off as arrogant and people see through that. And eventually what they do is they is they, you lose all your credibility because, because you start saying things that, that aren't true to pump yourself back up again, but make yourself feel good. But I had this problem because I felt like an imposter, and my my background was I was in sales. That's what I was always. That's what I always did with the organization. I had a couple of little roles in marketing, but I was in sales. What I was good at is turning around things that were broken. So. I worked my way through the organization like a rocket ship. When I was 24 years old, I was driving a truck. When I was 34 years old, I was vice president of sales. And in between, I did a bunch of jobs. And fortunately, I worked for a company that put me in roles that were completely out of my comfort zone. But what one of, one of my leaders realized really early on that I was good at turning things around that were broken. So they gave me a role in South Florida running one of our big production plants. I mean you want to talk about there everything in that plant I was bad at except for the sales department. So where did I spend my time? I spent my time in the sales department. I would hang out with them. I would go out in the street with them. I would focus on sales. Meanwhile the place is crumbling around me and and then I would spend my time in my office pouring through reports and green bars and financials and P&Ls trying to understand everything. And one day, I, it's like 6:30 in the morning. I'm sitting down for my morning cup of coffee. I've got this stack of reports that are sitting in my desk, and I just out of the corner of my eye I saw some movement. And my boss, who was a senior vice president of our division, walks in my office and scares the stew out of me. Like you know, just you can imagine, like your big big boss just shows up out of nowhere. He had flown in the night before, showed up really early to check on me. And he was a very wise man. He realized that things weren't very doing as well as they should be and that I should be further along. And he just looks at me and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going through the reports because we got to do flash and blah, blah, blah. And he could see I was a little bit uh, excited about it. When I say excited, stressed. And he said, come with me. And we went to the back of the plant where we were loading trucks and we walked on all the trucks and we walked all around and everybody's Spanish speaking. So, you know, we're just practicing our best Spanish all the way through the place. And took about an hour. Then set, came back to my office He said, what would you learn? I said, I learned that the entire plant's about to get shut down and I'm going to have the worst month of my life because our boiler's going to break. He said, how do you know that? He said, because we went back to the boiler room and I met a human being that I've never seen before. And I asked him, what's going on? And he says, the boiler's about to break. And we asked some deeper questions and turned out that it was happening. But he wasn't telling anybody because he thought his job was just to patch the thing up and 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 i learned like that was the last time i ever had to learn the most important thing that you can do is just go walk around and meet people and have conversations with them and the easiest way to build credibility is to show some vulnerability i don't know everything help me and show me and Mm -hmm. when you treat them like they're coaches like when they're teaching you they feel really good about that like you're you're empowering them like you're giving them the power to have more information than you have and teach you and along the way by every morning every morning i would make that loop through the plan i would change the loop up sometimes so people wouldn't be ready for me but every morning i would learn something new and learn something new and then a couple of times a week like your your ceo i would go back and like i would work one of the lines i would just go in you know put my gloves on stand there with everybody else and i would be bad at it like the people around me would be looking at me like there's something wrong but then at lunchtime they would come sit down next to me because i went and tried to do their job even though i was terrible at it would never be good at it and one leader, like one leader who called me out in a very nice way, taught me that you don't have to know everything. And the easiest way to be confident is to be good with people and take care of your people and they'll they'll take care of you. And they and they and they won't let you fail. Like I, 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 when, once I built that credibility, people would come to me and say, we got a problem, the building's gonna burn down. They wouldn't let me fail. That's
1: right. That's right. I mean, so imagine that somebody is working for you in that particular plant. Do they want you coming around and telling them how to do each of their jobs? I doubt it. Do they want you showing interest in trying to fix the problems that they have in order for them to do their job? I think so. In fact, that's one of the key things of engagement. Do I have the tools to, buy to do my job? And to just go around and say to people, what's getting in your way? What's going to make you more effective? What can I do to help you? It's an incredibly empowering process to do. And then your confidence is coming from your ability to shine light on the most important things to focus on. There's another, um, I love what your SVP did in that particular case, and notice that it wasn't come in and tell you, Jeb, what you need to do and how you need to do it. It was come in and do something with you, which was a great coaching moment. One of the tricks to gain confidence when you're in one of these spanning expansive roles is to talk to the person who put you in that job and ask a very simple question. What are you hoping I will do? What do you see in me that you think is going to be really effective in this job? What are the skills you want me to really hone in on? You'd be surprised at what they say. And usually it's, I know you don't know all this stuff, and please don't try to learn it. What I need you to do is to focus on X, Y, and Z.
0: And What's interesting you say that is that this leader, one of my greatest mentors ever, still one of my great mentors, once he felt confident that I was doing the things that I was supposed to do as a leader, then he began to bring in experts that would fill the gaps in. Like he was, he was, he got, well, he, like when he felt confident that I could lead this, this organization, he says, You don't really know anything about that. We got a hole over there. I've got an expert I'm going to bring in that can help you. Exactly. And, and suddenly I was able to just explode the process uh, and, and we were able to grow and we solved the problem right. and I got a bigger promotion and, and, you know, ended up moving oh, through yeah. the organization, oh, that's right. but it was, yes. but it was, it was, it was the fact, and that really helped me, you know, focus on the fact that I don't really have to know it all. I just need to know where to find people who know it all.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Your job as a leader is to create leverage. It's not about you doing it, it's about enabling and creating leverage. I have to give you another trick on this one that I learned from a general manager just recently. Going into her first GM job, she says, I'm not strong enough in finance. I'm really worried about all those reports that you were looking at, and how am I gonna know and focus and trust that my CFO is telling me the right things? So very smartly, she goes into headquarters to the big CFO, whom she knew and said, okay, what should my local CFO be telling me? What are the 10 questions I should be asking my local CFO? What a brilliant way to figure out what you need to know. It's great strategy.
0: Love it. Okay, let's switch gears for a moment and -hmm. let's talk about new leaders so i'll give you an example of of a new leaders. so a new a salesperson who's been really really good at sales they're an expert in sales they become the sales manager or you've got a person who is really good at a particular role a single contributor role and suddenly they become the district manager and one of the things that i observe in these leaders is that they have a tendency to become chief problem solvers, as we would call it. They try to do everything. Now, part of the reason that they're that way is, you said earlier that leader, these leaders, as a leader, you were always rewarded for knowing things. In a lot of cases, they got promoted because they were good at doing things. They could get stuff done. And now they move into the role and they're completely stressed out they're uh, they're creating dependency they can't scale themselves cuz they're they're doing everything for everybody all the time it's like the you know the the salesperson who gets promoted and they go on all the sales calls and they try to close every single deal and there's just a limit to how many deals they can close so they're not making people ar- around them better but there's this egotistical I guess a feeling of importance it makes them feel significant because they can do something. I I what I the way to describe it like they're, they're it's like cutting grass. I mean they look behind them and say I did a bunch of things today. I cut grass. The only problem is the grass is going to grow back because you got to cut it every single week or you know or it'll it'll grow. This this the, I don't know if you've seen this in young leaders yeah. but this concept of I got to be the chief problem solver. So my question for you is if you're a leader and in your, you're in that situation where you're exhausted at the end of the day, you got people lining up in front of your office to ask you, what should I do today? What should I do, boss? What should I do, boss? Rather than being independent, making decisions on their own, how do you relinquish your role as chief problem solver so that you can get more done through other people? Okay,
1: if you've got a small team, you can stay as chief problem solver. And in fact, that team may need you. But what you're doing then is you're being the expert leader that everybody is coming to for the answer. And the moment, as you said, that you can't create enough bandwidth to either do your job or to enable the team or to expand or to grow, then you are the problem. But, you know, I don't think it's an egotistical. It feels good. You know, I people came and asked me a question. It feels good that I know the answer. I can give them the answer. They go away. We think they go away happy, but they don't. They go away with well darn. I guess I have to come and ask her again every time I wanna do something. They learn to be helpless because that's what they think you want as a leader. So yeah, it's a common problem, chief problem solver. And it makes me feel like I'm valued because you can't do it without me. The problem is it becomes the bottleneck for growth, for development, for everything. And the way to get out of it is to get out of having the answer, see your value as the enabler, and learn to ask the question. Stop giving the answer, ask the question. Even if you know the answer, stop saying, well, it's X, Y, and Z. And start saying, well, what have you looked at? What haven't you, what else could you consider? How, what else is this like? Um, how, what about the impact of Y on this? Just ask some questions to lead people. So they walk away knowing stuff they didn't know they knew. You
0: are know, one of the most, uh, and important pieces of advice I ever got from a leader. And I was really, really lucky, Wanda. I worked for some amazing people. His guy's name is Roger McKee. I'm 25 years old and I've got my very first promotion. And I'm moving into the role and I went to Roger and said, you know, you hired me, you've helped me. Tell me, give me some advice. Like, what do I need to know going into this role? And he, he leaned across the desk and he said, I'm gonna give you one secret that will help you for the rest of your career. And he said, you need to learn how to make yourself obsolete. And I remember looking at him like I was shocked. Like he said that I go, well, if I make myself obsolete, they won't need me anymore. Mm -hmm. And he said, it doesn't work that way. He said, when you learn how to make yourself obsolete, the organization will always find something more important for you to do. So I took his advice and, and I had this rocket ship of a career and I took his advice everywhere I went. I you know, I gave up this chief problem solver role and I focused on getting all the people around me capable of doing the job better than I could. And what I found is as I would go from job to job to job, what happened is I would be sitting in my office. For example, I was director of national accounts at the young age of 29 and I got a $500 million business I'm running. And when I got there, it was a mess. I was a turnaround guy. And when I left, I was bored out of my brains. I didn't have have anything to do. I remember sitting in my office, twiddling my thumbs, just trying to figure out what I was gonna do that day because my people were so good. And because I was bored, a, a call came out because they needed some volunteers to help us merge a couple of companies. So I said, well, I'll go. So I went to Chicago and I got on this, this group of people. We were merging the companies together. You can imagine you're, you've are you got 401ks, you've got shared services, you've got data, data centers. Everything's got to be put together. And I spent a couple of months working on this project. Well, during that period of time, every executive from this big, huge organization was coming in and getting advice, asking questions, seeing how things were doing. We went to dinner, had drinks, got to know each other. And I went back to my old job and I wasn't in that job more than a month and the phone rang and it said, we want you to come out to Philly and meet with the CEO. We've got another job for you. Right. It was the relationships I was able to build because right. I wasn't there doing everything. My people could get everything done. And a lot of my peers were like, I don't know how you can possibly do that. How can you get away? I'm like, I call in, you know, a couple of times a week and ask how things are things going and everybody's good. But I think that this, you talked about enabling. I think it goes back to making yourself self-obsolete, empowering, and every organization in their HR literature has got, we empower our employees. But yeah, most right. leaders don't understand what empowering means. It means giving power away. Like you have to <laughs> give it to somebody. And when you give it to them, you can't micromanage the power you gave them. You can take it back if they abuse it, but you give it away and then you walk away from that. And that's the art and, and the and the act of making yourself obsolete. I'll be back to my conversation with Wanda in just a moment. First, I want to tell you a quick story. Last weekend, I went ziplining up in the mountains with one of my sales reps as a reward for crushing our sales number over the last year. And the entire trip was set up by Blueboard. They took care of everything and they made the trip incredibly easy. We just got with our Blueboard concierge, chose our experience, and the next thing we knew, we were wearing harnesses and helmets, waiting to jump off of our platform into the trees. We had such a great time and we made all kinds of amazing memories. The last zip line of the day, by the way, was was a zip line that went a mile long and we were going like 60 miles an hour. It was an amazing day and it meant so much to us to spend that time in the wilderness, having fun our way, doing our thing. This is why I love Blueboard. If you wanna motivate your top performers and treat them like the rock stars that they are, go to Blueboard. You can take your President's Club and sales incentive trips to the next level. You can even get a free demo just by going to podcast.blueboard.com. That's podcast.blueboard.com. And if you'd like to take a look at our trip, I recorded the entire thing on video. You can just go to my YouTube channel, that's youtube.com forward slash sales gravy, and you can watch the entire trip on video and you can watch to see how scared I got jumping off of those trees. Go check out Blueboard at podcast.blueboard.com. Now back to our conversation with Wanda Wallace.
1: Well, I'll put it in another way. I mean, I absolutely totally agree with you. I'll put it in a different way. If you need to be the chief problem solver, and that's what makes you feel good about the contribution you're making day in and day out, and there's comfort in it, I get that, then I can never take you out of that seat that you're in. You better permanently sit there and watch managers come and go above you. Because if you're the only one that can solve that problem, then I can't afford to replace you. So I say to people, pick your poison. Do you wanna sit there forever and have people promoted above you? Or do you wanna actually grab some bigger opportunities, have a bigger impact? And if you do, then you gotta get out of the chief problem solver position. Very well said. Absolutely right. One of the um, uh, senior leaders that I talked to, I was talking about somebody I was coaching. And he said, look, I know that she gets particularly anxious about whether her team can do it all or is needed or whatever, but look around. You know, do you have any lack of problems around here that somebody needs to fix? There's always stuff to be done. And if you're the kind of leader that can make yourself obsolete to use your language, then pick up another problem, do another thing. There's one more everywhere to get involved in.
0: So let's let's talk about something that you uh, make a big deal of in the book and it's how leaders add value. Like how they, how are they valuable? And you use the word leverage a -hmm. lot. You've already used it uh, as you've been describing some of these concepts. So let's let's just stop for a moment and talk about leverage as a leader, how you create leverage as a leader, and how you add value. Where is your value as a leader in your organization?
1: Okay, especially when you're not in this chief problem-solver role, you're in this spanning role, as I describe, then your value is making connections. So it's connections within the team, because it's amazing what problems the team can solve for themselves if they lean on each other to give the different components of of a side of a story or a brainstorm. So build the connections among the team is one way you add enormous value, and no one else can do that but you as the leader. You also build connections from your team to your peers' teams. I mean, how many teams have we been on where we thought that half the problem is we're not collaborating with that group over there? All right, you as a leader set that up to be successful or to be a failure. You need time for that. People wanna be coached. They wanna be cared for. They wanna get some feedback. They wanna talk about their careers. They want you to build a bridge for them, for other people. Open your network and help me expand my network. That's another way you add value as a leader. And sometimes you add value as a leader just being there to listen, you know, and ask a couple of questions. Geez, how valuable would that be if I could just come in and use a leader as a sounding board, not a problem solver? Because when you solve the problem for me, you take my power away. When you're a sounding board, you help me think smarter. Those, I mean, that's kind of the collection of said. And everybody complains, "Oh, I don't have time to do that stuff." That's because you're doing too much stuff. Get other people to do so you can do this value add part that no one else can do.
0: I, I love that. And I think that's the that's the true uh, that's the true iteration from going from I'm an expert in one area to I'm an expert in leading and developing and growing and connecting with people. And that brings me to my next question for you, and and that is, is is how expert leaders attract and motivate talented people. So let me set this up for you for a moment. So you're, let's just say we were, you're a leader and, and you got promoted because you were really good at doing one thing. And and you've got to move into a role where you're leading people who are really good at doing a lot of different things. And and suddenly you've got to go, go out and find talent. You've got to bring p- talent into your organization. How do expert leaders, people who have always been good at one thing, get out of that box and start looking more broadly at talent itself and get people who to want to come and work in their organization?
1: Okay, so number one, all of us want to be on a winning team. I, I don't want to come to work if we're not winning. Now, that doesn't mean we have it perfect. It just means we have to be making progress. And number two, I wanna be on a winning team that's doing work I'm skilled at doing and I think is important to do. So as a leader, help us celebrate our successes, help us set the right milestones, help us understand why the work that we're doing, even the micro detailed work has meaning in the company as a whole. That's your job, start there, it's number one. Number two, to motivate people, you have to know the person. Because everybody's motivators and drivers are slightly different. And, you know, I might be motivated by intellectually being able to dig into something in great depth, but that may not be what motivates you, Jeff. You might be motivated by feeling like you're helping someone or by getting that pat on the back on the public recognition or by, you know, feeling like you're belonging to something that's important. I got to know what matters to you. And that means I have to know you a tiny bit. If I don't know what matters to you, there's no way I can motivate you. So when I know your key drivers, what really gets you going, and they're not that complicated, there's about 10, maybe 12 of them. If I know that for you, then I know how to talk to you in a way that's going to get you excited. So I'm going to bet, Jeb, just having listened to you and talked to you on a couple of occasions, knowing a bit about you, that you get motivated by people recognizing what you can do. And the kudos, that look at that, right? There's just this instantaneous smile on somebody's face yep. when you hit it right, okay? So now I want you to do something, Jeb. I want you to get excited about this job that you have in front of this task. And I wanna use the language of recognition. Jeb, this is the chance for you to show the organization what you can do. This is the chance for you to shine. This is the chance for you to stand out. If I use that language, I'm going to get you much more excited, okay? Now, in terms of attracting a talent, get that going with the team that you have. Everybody is on a winning team. We have some successes. I'm motivated myself. I feel like I'm doing work that's meaningful. Who doesn't want to join that team? Let them go and recruit their friends, if nothing else. I think you will solve, I mean, right there, I think you can solve a lot of the problems.
0: I, it's that's brilliant advice, and you you hit it na- nail on the head. I can't tell you how many times as a sales rep I would tell my boss, "Look, it's not about the money. I don't care about the money. I'll make the money. It's about the trophy. Give me trophies, and I'll go through a wall for you." So, I, I, I you're exactly right about that, and I think that the I think that this goes back to what we were saying earlier about getting away from this this feeling of insecurity. I don't know everything, and go walk around and spend time with your people because the only way that you're really going to know your people is to just be with them. And, and when I'm working with, with executives, uh, business owners, people who are, are trying to learn how to lead salespeople who've never been in sales, my message is go sit next to them, go get in a car with them, go be with them on sales calls, and just be there. And if you're there enough, take them to lunch and you listen, you ask questions, they're going to tell you the things that drive them. And if you focus on those things, not the KPIs, on what's important to them, they'll do anything for you. And if they feel like they're being actualized on the job, if they feel like it's a great place to work, they will go get their friends. They'll go call their friends and say, you need to come work with me because they like working with their friends. And if you can get them working together, then they feel like they're in a family and they'll work even harder and they'll challenge each other and they'll push each other. And if you think, I just think back. I don't know about you, but I think back some of the greatest teams that I was ever on. Like I'm talking about dream teams. We loved each other. We were all we, we were all friends. We were almost like family. We hated each other. We would scratch each other's eyes out, you know, for a lead. Uh, but but there was a camaraderie that was created by that leader understanding everyone's personality type. And I know that I work for a, a sales leader who. I was the number one salesperson in the company and it was March and we had a whole year left. And I, and I'd sold, I mean, in that little span from the beginning of the year I sold more than anybody in the company had ever sold before. And I, I basically kind of laid down. I was, I wasn't prospecting very hard and I wasn't filling a pipeline. And, and the truth is I could have gone to sleep by the TV set and woken up in December. And I was going to walk on the stage in Maui and take count manager of the year. No one was going to beat me because I'd sold so much. And he in public, called me out and said, this is not okay. And if you keep operating like this, you can't be on my team anymore. Like, and this is front of executives. I was mad. Like I'm telling you, I was mad. I went home, told my wife, they don't, they take me for granted. I'm quitting. I'm never going to go back there again. I filled my company car up with premium gas, despite them all passive aggressive. And then on Monday, I went back to work and I doubled down and I worked twice as hard and in the quarter, I'm the number one sales rep in the region and I learned a valuable lesson from a great leader who understood that he could do that to me. Like for me, it was, tell me what I can't do and I'll prove you wrong. And he knew that because he spent so much time with me just understanding the personality type. He couldn't have done that to three other people on the team. Three other people would have folded up like a cheap lawn chair and gone and hidden. But for me, he made me mad and i went out to prove him wrong and i think i think that's that's one of the keys now real quickly i want to switch gears into another thing so we've been talking about how do you motivate and attract people let's let's step back and think about the expert leader let's just think you you're an expert in a particular field you've been promoted into more of a general manager type position so you're a ceo you're you're running a, a broad group of people how does this expert leader frustrate themselves and the other people on their team. So we know how to motivate people, what they should be doing. How does this person walk through the door and frustrate and make people not want to work with them or you know demotivate people?
1: Yeah, um, try to do my job for me or try to tell me how to do my job. Even if you dress it up really nicely and you're being really friendly and really chatty, basically you're telling me what to do and how to do it. And I leave meeting with you feeling dumber. That is how to demotivate people. Second way to demotivate people is mix up the wires on what motivates one versus the other. So you just gave the story about a sales leader who motivated you by making you mad. Do that to the wrong person for the wrong personality. And that is demotivating, totally demotivating. So getting that stuff right, And I'll tell you the other thing that demotivates people is when I believe as that my leader doesn't care about me as a human being, like, you know, nothing about me and you don't care about me as a person. All you care is what I produce for you. That's a major way to demotivate people.
0: So do you think that, that, that comes from, in some cases, we have different styles of communication. So in my vernacular, our language uh, we talk about directors, typically like the CEO type, uh, analyzers more like a CFO type, consensus builders more HR type, and uh, and energizers more people like me who are sales types. And so I'm you know I'm putting people in the general buckets, and I know <laughs> nobody fits in those buckets. But you've got, for example, an analyzer, say an engineer who is now in charge, and they're having to manage a bunch of you know uh, socializer, energizer, you know bunny salespeople and they're like it's all in water. For example, I mean for me analyzers are like my kryptonite. You know, the person who's got to get every little thing right is so tedious and and they're they're not aware that they need to shift and flex their style to others. In other words, they think that that the people, because they're the boss, everybody needs to flex to them, not realizing that they're getting paid for what the other people on their team are doing, not for what they're doing. And it's their job to flex to to the people on, on their team. Do you do you think that that's a mix up for leaders?
1: No, I think it is a big mix up for leaders, um, not understanding how to adapt your style. And now adapt your behavior, not change who you are. I'm not gonna take an analyzer and turn them into an energizer bunny. They won't be effective. But I can take an analyzer and say, how do you work best with an energizer bunny? What does that process look like and vice versa? So, you know, for example, I can go to you, Jeb, and say, geez, Deb, I know that I frustrate you as an analyzer, and I don't know how to work with you as an energizer bunny. So tell me what you need from me. Tell me what's going to be most effective for you. And then we'll have a little negotiation on that one. Then I'm going to say, well, I'm not going to let go of the numbers because they matter to me. Well, let's try not to dig in them too far. How, you know, we can negotiate that. I can come a little your way and you can come a little my way. But it's that learning to work with all different styles of personality that makes you successful as a GM, as a general manager, as a spanning leader. And it's just a skill you've got to get there, get to. It's not that those other styles, whatever they are, are wrong. It's that they're just different. And if you take that attitude, then you can figure out how to get the best out of them.
0: So I think that's a a good segue into my question about how expert leaders build high-performing teams. And if I go back and think about some of the great teams that, uh, that I was on and part of, people were different there was a lot of differences and and in fact one of the the exercises that we would do on these teams is do exactly what you said we would run these you know these personality style types and we would we were there are different things that you can use from disc to to gallop to you name it there's there's a bunch of them out there and we would then sit down and talk to each other when we when we were polar opposites and say, here's how I like to communicate. Be communicated with. Like this is how you get my attention. Here's here's the language that I speak. And and that worked. And I also believed that, and I and I believe this from the very get go of my leadership the time as a leader is that the more diverse my team is. And I'm not talking about diversity, completely in the way we think about diversity based along you know race lines or gender lines. I'm talking about those lines as well as diversity of thought, diversity of communication styles, diversity of approach when I had teams that were so different from each other, they tended to be much stronger teams. They were, they would challenge each other. We would all grow together. And we, we had this, a a weird way, we would be so much more compatible as a group of people than you would ever imagine just because we were all so different. I'm, I'm, I know this is a big question that I'm asking you, like how do expert leaders build high-performing teams? And you probably could write 10 more books on this, but do you have some basic advice for if you're setting out to build a team that operates at this level versus this level as a leader, an expert leader, what do you do?
1: Okay. So I'm assuming by expert leader, you mean somebody who has been an expert Who has stepped out of being the chief problem solver expert and is now trying to lead in a different way, as opposed to they're still trying to lead as an expert, which does happen. Yes. All right. So you've stepped out of the expertise role and you're now trying to build this team together. Number one, number one, number one, number one is we have to have a reason that we come together as a team. Too many teams are just there to exchange information with each other. That is not going to ever get you to a high performing team because we don't need to spend the time with each other, the adjustment with each other, because we don't really need each other. I need your information, but I don't need you as a person. So what's the thing that you need this team to come together to actually really solve? And that means you can't have the answer because then they don't need each other. So that's the starting point. We have to have a reason to be together. And then it is really getting to know each other. So I do have to get to know you as, you know, your communication style and your approach and a bit about your life and what your motivators and drivers are and what your irritants are. So I know how to best interface with you. And I now have enough trust with you as a team member that when you say something that is edgy for me, I know how to put it in context. Because if you can't do conflict on a team, you will never have a high performing team. So you're building the relationships so that they will tolerate that contentious debate and walk out still united and still friends. That's the secret. Now, I wanna say one more on this one, which is something I've actually never said in print, but I fundamentally believe. Um, There's a reason some of your most diverse teams were the most effective in terms of high performance, the tightness of bond. Because the moment on a team, we have a dominant style, race, gender, background, favorite color. I don't care what it is. We have a dominant, it's majority. Everybody else is trying to adapt to the majority. And it's one way we all turn ourselves into a bad version of the dominant style. And when you've got no dominant style, because there's such a mix on the team, it's a whole lot easier to now dig into our real common ground as a team which is what builds the trust and what builds the ability to do conflict
0: now you know why I love Wanda so much because that was just beautiful and and so brilliant uh, and uh, as a uh, just as a formula for for creating um, a, a coalition of individuals who come together and can get great things done and I love the way that you put that I've never had heard that articulated in that way before is beautiful. So let's let, that's just, this is your team. So you're creating a, a team of people that work together. One of the things that you talk about in the book is that leaders need to to also build a broad coalition and network outside of their team. So they've got a, like the story of of your new leader who went to the, the top level CFO and said, help me, I need some help here. Let's talk about this as a leader why is it so important that you're you're reaching way outside of your group and getting people that can can help you not only just get stuff done but but help you grow and help you develop
1: yeah and it's not about helping you it's sometimes helping your team so to young to people who are younger in your careers you will have heard the advice build your network and they don't understand what they're building for so they often build ineffective networks You are building this broad base of people from all walks of life in the company, all disciplines, all approaches, all countries, because you never know where you're going to need a source of information that you don't have within your team, okay? Now, here you are in this big job. You don't know everything. Your team is a team of experts because that's what's going to make it special. They know the other experts in that area. They don't need you to do that network. What they need you to do is to connect them to the broader organization that they don't have any touch points on, either to solve a problem or to give some solutions or to do some collaborations or just for their own growth and development. And it's at that point that your ability to tap people that know things your team doesn't know and can't tap is where you become valuable that broad, broad, broad network. All right, I have a great story I tell about this one. Um, two guys in this particular case they're in financial services. Um, one of them is leading a team that he knows nothing about the technical area of the team that he's leading. And that team has been notorious about kicking out the last three leaders because they don't respect that the leader knows something. He comes in, doesn't know anything. And he's really young too, by the way. So, um, <clears throat> you know, one of the team, one of the senior managers comes down and says, hey, it's working pretty well here. What the heck is going on? Like, is he bribing you? Is he, you know, not paying attention? Is he letting you do it? And what's going on? And the guy on the team says, you know, I don't know. All I know is I go to Bill. I have a problem with something that's happening in Spain. Bill picks up the phone, calls the CEO of Spain. They chat on the phone. Suddenly, somebody else from Spain is calling me and my problem is solved. And all Bill's is doing is tapping that broad network that he built just cause it was fun to get things solved for his team. That's why you need it,
0: yeah. I think uh, I think about you know, for example, I was the story I was telling earlier about going in and getting this big job running the operation. One of the things that really helped me out was I had a big network inside the organization of people that I could talk to and go to because I'd help them through several other roles. And it made all the difference in the world. When like my bowler was going down, there was someone that, that, that liked me enough. I'd built enough of a relationship with them that they were willing to rearrange their priorities, which they didn't have to rearrange, to help my bowler guy out get what they needed. And then I was able to get out of the way. I was to get people get two people right. talking that knew what they were doing, and then uh, and then I was able to get out of the way. And the same thing with you know the, the legal organization and the financial organization. This broad network matters. So I love the story about removing roadblocks so that the experts on your team can get stuff done. This is the message that I send to leaders of sales organizations. You don't know a lot about managing salespeople, but I can tell you this: if they're selling stuff and they're you're growing a lot of the problems that you're having will go away. So anything that you are doing or not doing that is creating an obstacle for your salesperson to make an impact through putting something into the pipeline and moving it through the pipeline is not in your best interest. So your job in a, in a lot of ways is to remove the roadblocks. Don't go sell stuff for them, get stuff out of the way so that they can go sell, sell things. And, and, in my organization right now, we've uh, we we implemented a number of policies because of some pricing issues and some mistakes, and I've been keeping a close eye on it, and I've noticed that our our rate of closing has started to to, to grind to a halt. So I went to my salespeople this week and said, I want you to get together and tell me what's going on. I know I'm going to get a lot of noise, but I'm looking for something. I didn't expect that to come up, but, that, but one of them said it's just taking us longer to get deals approved through the system. Something I've been keeping my eye on, so I'm going to go as, as soon as we're done, I'm going back out to go explore what are we doing that are creating obstacles for the experts on my team to do their job, and how are we going to move those things out of the way? Right.
1: You ask me what's leverage, that's leverage, because you. now it's not about you closing a sale or two or three. It's about a bunch of people being able to close a bunch of sales. That's leverage. All you have to do is remove the obstacles. Where's the problems? What do we do about it?
0: Okay. So let's go back to our expert leader. So you're a leader. You've been really, really good at a particular role in the organization. You got promoted because you were so good at that role. The organization said, we got to give you more to do so you get into a role where you've got this general role you're managing a, a bunch of people probably managing people who used to do what you did very well and i know from experience that it's easy when you're in those situations to gravitate to what you know and what you're good at and i watch young leaders do this all the time as they get into their first role where they're managing groups of people so From your standpoint, when you're this expert leader and you've gotten this promotion, and I I imagine that you probably have a lot of conversations like this with your clients when you're coaching them, how do these expert leaders get out of their own head, get out of their own comfort zone, and stay on track so they can hit the targets that, that they're required to hit in their new role?
1: Okay, so first remember that those people now who've been promoted up to the job that you used to have are excited about the opportunities for their own growth and their own career. And they do not welcome you coming back and doing their job for them. It's is like, just get that, remember what you were like when you first stepped into that role and how much you didn't want your boss telling you what to do. You're now in a new role and you gotta do that job, not your old job, Right? So now we have to get really focused on what's the thing that you and only you can do to make your entire team successful. Where's the value that you uniquely can bring? And the problem with that is it becomes intangible. It's not I closed the sale. It's not I had 15 client meetings. It's not I brought in this revenue. It's intangible. I had seven coaching conversations with my team in the last month that they walked away feeling really good about is just intangible, but that's where you're adding enormous value. You're doing something they can to do for themselves and get focused on that and get focused on how you are enabling that team to do more and then take credit for the enabling part, not the doing part. It's the best advice I can give.
0: And one of the things that I've done is a, you know, as an expert leader in my past, and I've got deep expertise in sales and marketing. It's my space. It's where I feel most comfortable. Is something similar to what your client did when they went to the CFO and said, "What are the ten questions I should ask?" And that was aligning myself to the KPIs, the the key performance indicators that that were like kind of like a dashboard. And keeping it super simple, it's really easy to overcomplicate this. But to have these things, I call it a scorecard in my business now, that alert me to where I may have an issue. So I'm right now. I'm focusing on my my closing velocity, a velocity of new business coming in, and trying to figure out where those where those issues are. If I understand what those KPIs are and I'm paying attention to them, even though I'm going to gravitate to a particular area of the business, it it gives me the 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 temperature reading the alert that I need to say you're off track so kind of like a you know like right. an airplane is is constantly beeping at the pl- pilots every time it gets off of course a little bit and it does just because there's turbulence and there's things that are happening I try to have a, a, at least a set of data that I'm always paying attention to that when I'm a little bit off track I can get ahead of that curve and and stay on track even though it may be doing something that I don't particularly like to do.
1: Sure. Well, that's what your SVP, when you were back managing the plant, that big job for the first time, that's what your SVP was most likely doing. That they were sort of watching a couple of key metrics saying, how fast is this thing turning around? Not as fast as I expected. Okay, now I need to get on a plane and go figure out what's happening. And that's what I see from the senior most leaders who are really effective in these kind of roles is they keep a handful of metrics that are to them, the indicators that stuff is on track, right? And that's a great way. I'll give you another way that I have heard from people and it's, um, you know, attend one of your direct reports team meetings, not for the purposes of talking or participating, purely for the purposes of observing and ask, is there a two-way conversation? Meaning, is it easy for people on the team to raise questions and concerns and get them heard and get them discussed? Or is it all one-way communication, your direct report telling everybody else? If it's two-way, likely chance, they'll figure out the problems or they'll at least surface them up to you to help you if if you need to be involved. One-way communication, worry, dig a little deeper. To simple, really. And again, the thing is keep this simple about the stuff that really matters because you can't do it all.
0: Well, I think I, there's a couple of things that I want to unpack there because I, tr- truly brilliant. First of all, when I think about my the greatest leaders I've ever worked for, they were brilliant. And in fact, it's genius. They would take complex things and make them simple. And what I would notice is that the leaders that were often failing were taking simple things and turning them into complexity, making it hard for people to consume. And the other thing that those leaders are really good at, and your point about you know my leader looking at a core a, a, a set of metrics, this is one of the things that Chris was really good at. And in fact, what he taught me was is that uh, for a, a senior leader in particular, your greatest and most valued ability is the ability to predict the future. So, in other words, if you're a CEO and you're you're doing your quarterly, you know, report out to the stock market, you're telling them what's going to happen in the future. And if right. you're if you if you predict the future well, they they you get a bump. And if you fail, something's going to bad is going to happen to your stock, and eventually the board's going to take you out. And even for even for mid level and you know front line leaders, your ability to tell your boss here's what's going to happen. And that's a very difficult thing to do if you're not out listening, if you're not observing, if you're not paying attention to metrics, if your head's down focusing on doing things that you feel comfortable with, what happens is you get surprised and you get surprised a lot. And when you get surprised a lot and you start letting people down, they lose trust in you. And that's how you end up losing your job. Right.
1: I heard a great quote this week that just has me inspired, Sandy Rogers. You know, think about all the energy we put behind financial metrics, analyzing, looking at them and all the financial metrics numbers that everybody looks at. They're the lifeblood of sales. That's fabulous. Okay. But they're all looking backwards. They're all telling us what happened. None of this tell us what's coming. So Sandy's view of how do you get focused on what's coming is customer loyalty and employee loyalty. Because if you can keep your customers, increase the share of wallet, you're in good shape and they're being net promoters. Same is true for your employees. If they're excited, enthusiastic, ready to be there, they're going to keep things running. Now, those may not be the only things that allow us to predict the future, but if you stop to think about it, that stuff of where's the people equation, where's the human emotional connection here, those are the people who are going to surface for you the problems that you can get ahead of before they blow up that's what your job is
0: and by the way if you don't have those emotional connections you're going to be standing out in the parking lot and the building's (laughs) going to be burning down and you're going to ask people like why didn't you tell us and they're going to say because you wouldn't have listened anyway
1: yeah or i didn't believe i could tell you yeah
0: i didn't believe i could tell you i didn't you didn't i didn't trust you to take the information and do something with it yeah okay last question and last subject so I don't know about you and your practice, but I know about me. And the most frequent question that I get of all the questions is, Jeb, how do you stay motivated? I get this question over and over and over again. I've got a a special insider group that can just send me text messages so they're able to communicate with me anytime. And this is the number one thing that people send me. On social media, if I get direct messages, number one thing that leaders send me. And when I'm teaching in my my coaching courses, the number one question is how do I stay motivated? So it tells me a couple of things. First, leaders are burnout. There's a lot of leaders that feel burnout. They're, they're, They're tired, they're worn out. I think a lot of that is self-inflicted because they're chief problem solvers and they're trying to do everything. They don't understand the value of enabling people and and the, the, the motivation that comes from seeing people succeed. I think sometimes they don't realize that that's their job. Their job is not to be the superstar. Their job is to be the foundation. And 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 I think that if we even take this to our ex- expert leaders, so you've got an expert leader. Let's say I was really really good at sales, and now I got to run operations. And I can tell you from my own standpoint, when I was in those turnaround modes, modes that did not excite me. Like going out and you know walking through a plant and looking at machines and how they were working, I, I I would have just rather have run my head into a brick wall than to have to go listen to an engineer tell me about how water goes and how we're. I don't know, foculating things and whatever we were doing in the place. I have no idea what most of that (laughs) stuff was. The chemicals, and uh, it wasn't motivating to me. And this is my last question for you. I don't know if this happens to you a lot. I don't know if you get this question a lot, but people want to know how do they self-motivate? Now, I heard a leader the other day ago, a president of a Fortune 200 company said, because someone asked him that question, and he goes, he says like they asked him how like how do you keep your leaders motivated? He says I hire people that don't need to be motivated. I get that. <laughs> I understand it. Okay, but if you're that leader and you feel like you're not motivated or you don't are you you're having a hard time keeping yourself motivated, waking up every morning and excited about what you do, what's your best advice?
1: I just published an article on this one because I think we're in a massive crisis of demotivation. We're we're all burning out. Um, and I just published an article on this one, And my fundamental belief is we cannot work twenty four seven and think that you're going to stay motivated. It just, the human body doesn't do that. No elite athlete would try to do that. Why are we trying to do that? It doesn't make any sense to me. So the first thing is to get your own, I'm going to say well-being, but I don't mean necessarily go start doing meditation or mindfulness. That does help. It's true. But you've got to have moments where your brain is away from the problems and just doing something else. If you don't take those moments, 10 minutes here or there, you can't sustain the stamina it takes to actually really do the job. So there's a lot being written about that. I just published an article on it. There's a fabulous book by Jenny Broxus called Thriving Mind. Plenty of stuff out there, but go clean up your own individual habits because if you can't, there's no way to do it. The second thing is now lean in for you. What is it you love? What is it you love about your job? So I say, I bet you could care less about the chemicals, but I bet you love the success you get and the recognition you get from solving that problem. And I bet you love the connection with the engineer and getting to know that engineer and understanding what makes them tick. Okay, so I need you now to get focused on those skills as a way of doing your job. But if you don't understand, if you don't clean up your own life, so you have the stamina to continue to deliver, here's the acid test. I want you to be as sharp emotionally and cognitively at 4 PM as you were at 9 AM. And I want you to build your day so that that is true every single day. Number one. And then number two, what motivates you and excites you?
0: A great advice. Last Saturday, I took the entire day off, no devices, no screens, no anything. And I went out into a a pasture. I live on a farm and it's a big pasture with a chainsaw and a mower and and a a set of headphones and I just listened to podcasts all day long, straight through. I was listening to Entree Leadership. So I just listened to the podcast the entire day long. I don't even really know what half of the conversations were. When I got done, I went to bed that night. I was tired. I was worn out. I had blisters. The next morning I woke up and I was in on fire inspired. Like there were yep. things that were coming up in my head. I was solving problems. I can't tell you how many problems I solved in that pasture that impacted my business. On Monday, I came in and one of my people said, This is like a beautiful mind moment because I'd mm-hmm. solved a problem and I'm on a whiteboard and I'm drawing the whole thing out. And it happened in that field. And um my, my my admonition to leaders everywhere is you got to take days where you turn the phone off and you turn the computer off and you stop feeling like you have to answer every email all the time, every text message. You just walk away from it and then you go do something else that has nothing to do with leading and then go get a good night's sleep, eat well, take care of yourself and you'll be amazed at how many of the problems and issues that you're facing you're able just to work out because your brain is so powerful you're just never giving it an op- opportunity in fact it's almost like your brain is operating on the surface all the time doing all of these 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 sim- dealing with all these symptomatic issues and you never give it an opportunity to do deep work and to really process like uh, like you know, in the old days when we would like overnight, we would send everything into the database, and then it would it would you know process everything. The next morning, it would spit out the answer. Yeah, we're not doing that anymore. And I agree with you. I, I think that we got people who, for some reason, they just feel like they have to be on. This goes back to a chief problem solver. I got to be on twenty four hours a day, or everything's going to fall apart. I, that's why I say part of this is, is egotistical. Like if 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 I'm not here, everything's going to fall apart. But some of that's just because you've created dependency right. so that, that people can't get things done without you. And, I, I, and right. I, that's just sad because that's, if you're on vacation and you can't enjoy your family or you're at home at night and you just can't have a little bit of time off, well, that's not a way to live. And you've, and you've got to go focus on other things in your life other than just work.
1: That's right. So this is why you create leverage. So you get out of that running the engine like it was a maze. You you want to you know, feel like you're going to lose motivation is just sit and run that maze day in and day in and day out or rat whale, whatever we call it. Um, so that's why you create leverage. That's why you stop being the chief problem solver. Let some other people take a crack at it. Because if you drop dead, heaven forbid, tomorrow, somebody will figure it out. And then we, our best creative solutions do not come while we're sitting there thinking about the problem. Our creative solutions, our ideas, our inspirations come when we're not thinking about it. We have our brains free. We're doing something completely different like a chainsaw or a painting or a musical concert. So go give yourself a break. And if you can't find 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the afternoon in the middle of the day, then you got a problem with leverage and being a chief problem solver. Go back and fix that problem.
0: Wonderful. Wanda, you are one of the most brilliant people I think I've I've met in my life. I've, I've enjoyed so much spending time with you. And this has just been incredible advice. If you're a leader and you're you're interested in getting more information on Wanda and her book, um, I'm gonna let Wanda tell you where you can find her, where you can engage, where you can read her articles, and tell us a little bit more about where people can find this amazing book.
1: Thank you very much. It's, um, it's a pleasure to be here, Jeb, and it's great fun to talk with you always. I just love your approach as well. So we've got a mutual support system going. The book, You Can't Know It All, is available on any major reseller that you would go to. So you Amazon or Google or not Google, but you'll find it on your favorite spot. Um, Our website is leadership-forum.com. There's lots of content there, lots of articles, including the article I just published on the fatigue and burnout. Um, If you Google my name, Wanda T. Wallace, you'll find lots of other connections to things that I have done. Check out our podcast as well, Out of the Comfort Zone, and then we have a subscription service, outofthecomfortzone.com. That's enough for people to find me, I think, Jeb.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for spending time with me today, and I look forward to the next time that you and I are together having a conversation about how to be a better leader. Thank you, Jeb. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to it. Well, I hope that this conversation inspired you to go look at yourself in the mirror as a leader. There was so much truth dropped in this conversation, so powerful, I think this is a podcast that you'll want to replay again and again because there's so many takeaways. Before I go, I wanna remind you to go check out Blueboard because forward-thinking leaders, companies, and sales organizations trust Blueboard for their sales and presence club incentives. They know that motivating and retaining their top salespeople is a competitive advantage. So instead of cash spiffs and lame gifts and flying 100 people to the Bahamas, with Blueboard, your winning reps get to choose their own bucket list trip, something that is truly meaningful to them, something beyond any dollar amount. It's a trip they will never forget. And trust me on this because I know from experience, when their reward means something to them, when it's special, they'll be twice as motivated to win again. If you want to do something special for your salespeople who hit their number, you can learn more about the wide range of trips and experiences that Blueboard has to offer at podcast.blueboard.com. That's podcast.blueboard.com.